come, O love divine, and inflame in our hearts and our minds a love for you, O Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Happy Pentecost to you. As many of you know, Pentecost is the last Sunday of our Easter celebration. It marks 50 days after the resurrection of our Lord. And at Pentecost, we remember the visible and audible outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that early apostolic community. And so while the following statement does require some level of qualification, it is fair enough to say that the Church of Jesus Christ has its origins in this particular moment. A moment when the veil between heaven and earth becomes paper thin. So Pentecost is a, uh, it's a fasten your seatbelt moment. The plane is about to get bumpy. I mean, who knows what might even happen this morning. Maybe you're a little nervous. I am too. But we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And if anything excites theological controversy today, it is most certainly the Holy Spirit. What happens when the Holy Spirit manifests his presence in palpable ways? That's the question that we want to press in together this morning with our text in Acts 2. And I want to keep that question before you. What happens when the Holy Spirit shows up? When we ask for the Holy Spirit to come, we need to be very careful to know exactly what it is we're asking for. Why? Because Pentecost resides in the orbit of text in the Bible where God manifests himself in what has traditionally been called theophanies, or pulling back of the veil where God is unmistakably present. I love these stories in the Bible, those places in the scriptures where the veil between heaven and earth becomes thin, places where God descends among humanity in, in an arresting and in an overwhelming way. For example, God appears at Sinai. Uh, he sets his foot on the mountain. And when the people in their tents see the manifestation of God's presence, lightning, smoke, clouds, they respond in a completely intelligible, even if fearful way. Hey, Moses, how about you go up there for us? We'll stay down here. All right. Micah speaks of God descending in an act of judgment. And when his foot, when God's foot touches the mountain, the mountain melts like, like wax under the heat of his judgment. Jesus, he hangs between heaven and hell. The ultimate theophany, the ultimate unveiling of God's self-manifestation. And what happens in that moment? Well, the earth shakes. The sky goes black. The veil rips in two. And in that most bizarre verse in Matthew, the graves open up and dead people go and visit with their families. I have a colleague of mine at Beeson who describes that text as the Bible's thriller passage. <laughs> you begin to see a pattern. When a theophany happens, when the veil between heaven and earth becomes thin enough to see through, when God appears in tangible moments of self-manifestation, the earth responds. The imagery is apocalyptic. It's earth shaking, lightning, moon turning to blood. The natural order is thrown off keel, and the normal mode of natural existence is turned upside down. Because God, who we all know is everywhere, is especially present right now. And the roof is blowing off. So maybe we do need to be careful 
when we cry out together, as we heard the choir just, uh, uh, just before, come Holy Spirit, creator blessed. Maybe we don't really know what we're talking about when we ask for a palpable manifestation of God's spirit, because it's not like going to Disney. Pentecost is the culmination of Easter. It's the culmination of God's promise to redeem humankind by his own self-giving. It's the crossroads of time. It's the intersection of eternity and our world. It's God making everything new, reversing the order of the old age, countering the domination of sin in the world. He's overturning the rebellion of humanity, making an end of every effort that we might have to build our own Tower of Babel. So what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up? The Tower of Babel comes tumbling down. Now, I'm jumping right into the middle of our Acts reading this morning, but the lectionary, which admittedly can be spotty at times, is really helpful this morning. Because Acts is often read in conjunction with Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And I actually think reading these two texts together is a step in the right interpretive direction. Most of you know the story of the Tower of Babel. It ends the first part of Genesis, known as the primeval history. It's the culmination of the effects of the fall on humanity, resulting in a flood, resulting in the dispersion of the peoples throughout the nations. Cosmos, order, has once again turned to chaos because of the horrendous effects of sin. And in the midst of chaos, Babel, as a culture, as a people, arises as an organized group. And in Gerhard von Rod's terms, the city arises as a sign of their valiant self-reliance. The tower becomes a sign of their will to fame. Those in Babel build a tower reaching to the heavens. That's an expression regarding its height. It doesn't necessarily mean that humans are trying to build something where they could invade heaven. Rather, it reveals and resembles the energies of their own hands to establish themselves. And why would they do this? So that they could build their name. So that they could maintain and build their status. And in these human efforts towards self-achievement, God identifies them as the culmination of human rebellion. And what does God do? Comes down to them. The text says God comes down to look around and see what's going on. I think that's kind of funny, right? It's not that God's nearsighted, didn't know what was going on, but it's an expression to show the silliness of these human efforts compared to the largeness, the grandness, the bigness of God. He comes down and he sees what they're doing and he says this can't happen and he brings his judgment. Now Babel, languages dispersed. It's exactly what you feel like when you hear a foreign language. What does it sound like to you? It sounds like Babel. But what comes after the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis? God's promise to Abraham, the next chapter. The promise that through the seed of this elect individual, this chosen patriarch, that God was going to bless the nations. The nations that he had just distributed throughout the world by the division of their languages, he was going to bless them and bring them together because of Abraham's seed. The Abrahamic covenant and the light of the Tower of Babel is a massive statement regarding God's redemptive plan. It's this. Humanity does not build a tower to God, a tower of brick and mortar. How silly. Rather, God descends to us 
And God tells us in the Genesis account, if you're not going to have me the way in which I come to you, then you're not going to have me at all. And this is why Pentecost is properly understood as the crossroads of redemptive history. The reversing of the effects of the Tower of Babel. The chaos brought by sin is ordered again. The making good on the promises to Abraham so long ago, they're actualized now. God's promises to bless the nations through Abraham's progeny, it's fulfilled. And here at Pentecost, what do we see? Humanity from across the nations with languages unintelligible to each other. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, French, German, Coptic, Korean. And now they're hearing and they're understanding. And they're understanding each other because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Creator, the agent of redemption. He's lighted on them in order to make Jesus Christ known. This is truly a theophany moment. This is a God unveiling moment. Babel is undone. God has come down to us. God has planted his foot in our midst. And time becomes intermingled with eternity. But what happens when the Holy Spirit appears? When the Holy Spirit shows up? The people can hear and they can understand. You know, the scene is wild in the first four verses in Acts 2. Here, the early apostolic community is gathered. The Holy Spirit rushes in on them, quite literally. There's wind that fills the house. That's the same creative wind that we read in Genesis 1, where God spoke and he breathed and chaos is moved into cosmos and order. So the early Christians in that room are experiencing the creative force and power of God through the Holy Spirit. And it's just like God to operate this way. Some of you may remember Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 37. What do you see, Ezekiel? Well, a pile of bones. And then God's spirit rushes in on these bones and they come together in a bit of a freak show. And now sinew and flesh and eyeballs show up and they're walking around. God breathes and things come to life. Pentecost is Ezekiel's vision come true. It's the clanking of skeletal remains of humanity undone by sin and death. And now they're coming to life. And it's just like God to act in this way. God is doing what God does best. Just ask Israel in the Old Testament. Just ask Jesus. Because God likes to take things that are dead and make them alive again. Genesis 2 verse 7. And he breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. The force of this life-giving moment at Pentecost is the effective power of hearing and understanding. When the Spirit shows up, those who have been made alive can hear and they can understand. The language barrier is done away with and devout Jews from the city can hear and understand in their own language. Now our tendency in Acts 2 is to focus on the miraculous character of the speaking in tongues, and understandably so. But a central focus in this text is on the miracle of hearing. Martin Luther was right when he said that humanity is most truly human when it is a hearing agent. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. And what's going on here? They can hear and they can understand. And this puts us into the crux of this Acts 2 text this morning. 
the hearing and the receiving of the apostolic message. What happens when the Holy Spirit appears? When the Holy Spirit shows up? Much is made of Jesus Christ. Acts 2 leaves no doubts to the linking of the Holy Spirit's coming and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. Now, admittedly, this emphasis comes after the lectionary reading that we heard this morning. Our reading this morning ends with Peter quoting Joel chapter 2 and then saying that the last days that Joel talked about are, in fact, the days that you are experiencing right now. When will the final days come? Peter's answer is, you're in it right now. These are the last days, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And then after that, Peter exercises that prophetic moment by the preaching of Jesus Christ. How does sinful humanity come to speak of the life-giving work of Jesus? The Holy Spirit makes such redemptive speech possible for the sake of proclamation and for hearing. This is such a central and important commitment regarding our understanding of the identity of God. There's no incongruence between the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. I don't want to bore you with theological minutiae, but I'm about to. It is heretical to understand there being three distinct wills in the life of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is only one will shared by all the persons in a communion of eternal love. To say this is to say there can never be incongruence between the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit's presence is made manifest most powerfully when Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead is proclaimed powerfully and effectively. And when this happens, by the way, you can be assured that the Holy Spirit of God is at work. So where the Holy Spirit is present and active, much will be made of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his word. Are there times when the moon turns to blood and unusual activities accompany the Spirit's work? I assume so. We have missionary friends today. I'm sure you've seen this in the Muslim world. I assume so. But if the result of these moments is not a higher valuation of Jesus Christ and a deeper love of his word, then the Spirit's activity must be questioned. Because on Pentecost, when the Spirit shows up, people understand and they hear and they perceive and they rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards America's greatest theologian, perhaps America's greatest philosopher as well, is remembered much for his associations with the first great awakenings in the pre-revolutionary 18th century. You know, people who were associated with these revivals, I'm, I'm fascinated with just reading about these, by the way. They spoke of their vivid sense of spiritual things, great joy in faith, deep sorrow over sin, a passionate desire to evangelize others, and a heightened feeling of, of love for God and for humanity. Opponents of the revivals in the 18th century spoke of the participants as enthusiasts, a 
colleague of mine at Beeson told me that he saw a placard in a New England parish describing a priest who had ministered in this parish without enthusiasm. You know, I like my martini stirred and my religion placid. But of course, abuses did come along with these revivals. And a great concern to Jonathan Edwards was to warn people against trusting in their religious or spiritual experiences themselves. And through Edwards' writings, he sought to identify the marks of a true revival, a true manifestation of the Spirit of God. Now, it's important to say, Jonathan Edwards saw some incredibly miraculous manifestations of the Spirit's presence. Can I read a description of this that someone saw at his preaching in Northampton, May 1741? On this occasion, they said, several professors, that is, full church members, were so greatly affected with a sense of the greatness and the glory of divine things that they were not able to conceal it. They cried out in distress. Can you imagine that happening right now? The visible effect of his preaching on their bodies, he wrote, proved to be contagious. And soon the whole room was filled with nothing but outcries, faintings, and such like, end quote. So Edwards, stately and learned as he was, saw some incredible manifestations of the Spirit's work in Northampton, Massachusetts. Pentecost moments. But, and this is crucial, for Edwards, the outward manifestations neither proved nor disproved the work of the Spirit. A genuine outpouring of the Spirit must be judged by the results, not the physical signs. And these results are primarily marked for Edwards by the raising of our affections because of a heightened awareness of the beauty of Jesus and the love of God demonstrated to us in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And if the response from us today is, well, yeah, I get the Jesus stuff, but I want more. I want some smoke and mirrors. I want some special insight directly from God apart from Jesus. Then we've lost the plot. Because there's nothing bigger, there's nothing more tangible, there's nothing more experientially powerful than the recognition of the good news that Jesus dies for sinners and you're one of them. And therefore Jesus lived, died, and was raised again for you. So this morning we collectively say on Pentecost, come Holy Spirit, Creator blessed, do come in our midst. Pour yourself out on us, not because we want a laser show and fireworks, even if that happens, but because we want to hear, we want to understand and proclaim the good news, the news that men handed Jesus over to die, but in so doing, God was changing the world upside down. He was redeeming it. He was bringing light and hope to a world awash in the quagmire of sin. And not only to a world awash in the quagmire of sin, but to me, because I'm swimming in it too. Come, Holy Spirit, fall on us. Fan a flame in our hearts. Raise our affections in this place so that we can't wait to hear and to talk about Jesus Christ. Amen.